welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Psychotherapist Mark Epstein is often asked how he incorporates his Buddhist practice into his therapy sessions. His latest book is an answer to that. In the Zen of Therapy, Uncovering a Hidden Kindness in Life, Epstein documents dozens of therapy sessions over the course of a year, tracing the Buddhist themes that arise, weaving together psychoanalytic theory, Zen poetry, and the music of John Cage, Epstein presents a compelling model of therapy as spiritual friendship. In today's episode of Tricycle Talks, I sit down with Mark to discuss Zen koans, the improvisational nature of therapy, and the art of listening. So I'm here with Buddhist author and psychotherapist Mark Epstein. Hi, Mark. It's great to be with you. James, great to see you again. <laughs> you know, you've been a contributor to Tricycle for so long since its beginning, and I think I met you when Thoughts Without a Thinker came out, and so I've read all your books, and I have to say, I think this book is the best. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's not to say that the earlier books were not great, but I just think this one is fantastic. It's always a mixed compliment, yeah. but... Uh... They just get better and better. It's different. And I didn't want to write another version of the same book again. So it actually kind of surprised me the way this book took form. How is it different? Talk a little bit about what you intended to do. I wasn't sure what I intended to do when the process of writing began, but I had a, a writing time set aside. I've written all my books just one day a week because I'm mostly Boy. seeing patients. So that one day a week rolled around and I was like, oh, I don't know. The question that people are always asking me that I'm always trying to avoid is, well, how do you actually bring your Buddhist longings or your Buddhist experience into the real psychotherapy? Do you teach your patients to meditate? Are you asking them to be mindful? Do you sit quietly with them? And I'm always, no, I'm just being a therapist, but I'm trying to be myself. So somehow if the Buddhist thing has influenced me, it should be coming through. And then I've written a lot about translating Buddhist thought into the psychological language of the West with references to psychotherapy, obviously. But I decided for this next writing project that what I would try to do is pay attention to the details of the individual psychotherapy sessions that I was having and to try to write down as literally as possible what actually happened in one session a week where I thought that something of my Buddhist inclinations was contributing to the therapy, even if it was in a small way. I set myself that agenda, and I tried every week or so to write down one or two sessions where something opened up, something that in what I was saying or doing or something for the patient, where something happened that had a Buddhist a ring to it for me. And I, I wrote it down after the session in notes, which I don't ordinarily do. And then over the weekend or on my writing day, I typed it up. I did that for a year. So I accumulated uh, you know, 50 or so randomly selected sessions, not all with the same patient, different patients. So kind of kaleidoscope or mosaic picture of a year of therapy, which it happened to end just before COVID. And I still didn't know, with, like, what was I doing this for? But it was occupying my need to write, so I just left it alone. And I didn't read over any of the cases until the year was up. And then I started looking through it 
showed it to my editor. I've had the same editor for the past couple of books who I really trust. And I said, do you think there's anything here? And she said she thought there was, but that the only through line was really me, not the patients, because they were all just incidental. So she said, you should go through each one and write a kind of reflection or a commentary so that we can see what was going on more in your head, you know, while you're being the therapist. So I, I liked that. And for the next year of the writing, that's what I set out to do. You know, it becomes really apparent, and it surfaces for you too, how deeply your psychotherapeutic practice is shaped by your Buddhist practice, which preceded your psychotherapeutic practice. And there are so many ways in which that's true, but one of them that I was really struck by is this notion of being with a patient rather than doing anything. You quote one of your major influences, Winnicott, is talking about, I had to stop interpreting, I was getting in the way of the patient and the patient's process. So say something about being and doing and and being with the patient and not, I shouldn't say overanalyzing, but not interpreting everything they do and allowing whatever it is for them to come up. Well, that reference that you just made to Winnicott, which is one of my favorites, he actually says something on the order of, I realized that I was interpreting mostly to impress myself, Mm -hmm. but that the patient could experience that interpretation as a kind of intrusion. And uh, he said, things finally started to open up for me as a therapist when I stopped interpreting so much and just let myself be there. That sounded very Buddhist to me. I was never very good at interpreting. (laughs) There are uh, good therapists who interpret much more intelligently than I do. But the concept in psychoanalysis about how and when to interpret it centers around tact, which is, I think, another version of the Buddhist right speech. Mm -hmm. We all can see what's wrong with the people we're close to, but how often is it helpful to tell them just what's wrong with them? So tact is very important in all of our relationships, including the psychotherapy one. I set up this kind of polarity in the book between uh, doing and being, which also comes from Winnicott, but is also a kind of Buddhist idea, which is not to downgrade the value of doing, but just to say that doing isn't everything and that there's this other quality to life that has to do with being that is also an interpersonal kind of experience. So I think when I am able to simply be as myself with my patients, that something of that quality of of attention, if you want to call it that, or awareness, or empathy, in the book I call it simple kindness, something of that is transmissible, I think, and sometimes can be absorbed also by the patient who might need that quality and in their experience also. You know, being, just being with the patient And the quality of listening was really impressive, I thought. And what came out of the patients, they were doing the work. You like to refer to John Cage, and you have a Cagean approach to your interaction with your clients. And in the therapeutic process, you create a kind of horizontal relationship. You have a spiritual friend there. You talk about interpersonal meditation, which becomes really apparent. But by giving them that space, something comes out of the patients that's extraordinary. And Just to quote your quote of Gary Snyder, and I think it's from a Tricycle article early on, you say, within a traditional Buddhist framework of ethical values and psychological insight, the mind essentially reveals itself. So one, how is it that the patient does the work? And two, taking that Gary Snyder quote, what is happening when the quality of being allows the patient that space? Well, I love that about the mind revealing itself. 
And that was from an early tricycle interviewer. Or yeah, article. I thought so. I wasn't sure. Yeah, it was. That way of working, while I was deeply inspired by my Buddhist explorations, which you're right, did happen way before I even began my training to become a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist. But that way of working, I think, is classic within the psychoanalytic tradition, you know, where even right. going back to Freud, where the patient is lying on the couch, not even looking at the therapist. So the analyst is behind and is simply listening, you know, and the patient is listening to themselves, you know, listening to their own minds, listening to their own unconscious, really, is how Freud talked about it. That was one of the parallels that I saw originally when I started my training, the analytic attitude and the method of free association or evenly suspended attention or free-floating attention, that that seemed remarkably similar to the kind of mindful attention that those of us who come up in Buddhism learn about. So that was very reassuring to me that I could bring the Buddhist way of listening into the psychotherapeutic way of listening and start to use them interchangeably, really. Then I discovered John Cage, a musician deeply influenced by Buddhist thought, went to hear D.T. Suzuki teach at Columbia for years in the early 1950s. But Cage said he, Cage, was already a musician, so he wasn't going to start meditating. Any more sitting would be too much sitting, and he had already decided to devote his life to music. So he decided to try to adapt what he learned from Suzuki to his music. So he started to not screen out non-musical sounds from musical sounds, but to hear all sound as music. That I found deeply inspiring. It's such a Buddhist notion not to screen out the unpleasant, not to push away the unpleasant, and not to cling to the pleasant. But as a therapist, trying to help people dig down into themselves and be kinder and more accepting towards themselves, that idea of not pushing away the unpleasant, the unpleasant feelings, the unpleasant thoughts, and not clinging to the pleasant seemed like the right thing to try to communicate. Sometimes when I've been teaching with Sharon Salzberg and Robert Thurman, Thurman will begin our teaching by doing an elaborate visualization where you imagine a wishing tree, you imagine yourself on a cliff, overlooking the water and a big tree rising behind you and your ancestor figures who have inspired you sitting in the tree. And I always imagine these two grandfather figures, one of Winnicott, who you've already mentioned, and the other of John Cage, both you know, beaming down that quality of listening or of being or of awareness that I could try to remember in the office. That's really nice. When I was at Berkeley, John Cage was playing and I went with a childhood friend who took me there. I don't know that I would have picked it, but we yeah, went. Really? And it was amazing because as all of these sounds began to erupt, many people started getting up and leaving. Yeah. And when I was reading your understanding of a cage, I was saying, in the same way, we turn away from our thoughts and emotions. Yeah. And so I thought, I was witnessing something there that only at this point in my life do I realize, oh, they were leaving in the same way I might turn away from a thought. So when you talk about the sort of meditative quality of mindfulness that you bring to your therapy sessions, I was thinking, exactly, that's a wonderful way of letting it all in, not turning away from or not moving toward a kind of equanimity that can develop. 
And yet it's so easy to say, and yet it's so difficult. As difficult as it was for those people to listen to John Cage, we were younger, we could listen to anything. But a lot of the older people started getting up and leaving. Cage came to Naropa the first summer that I was there. I was 20 years old and just learning about everything all at once. And Cage came and he did a performance like that for, you know, the thousand people who were at Naropa studying Buddhism. And people started getting up and leaving, and even worse, started booing and making noise. (laughs) And uh, it was a fiasco. Cage was upset, apparently. I I met someone uh, up here in Woodstock who was one of his assistants at that time. But the next day, Trump Rinpoche, who was the Tibetan Lama who was running Naropa, called Cage into his office and asked him if he would join the faculty at Naropa. (laughs) He understood just what you're describing, you know. What is it, though, that doesn't allow us to let it all in, so to speak? What it is that doesn't let us let it all in is what the Buddha described in his first noble truth as the universal experience of what's difficult. Dukkha was his word, generally translated as suffering, mistranslated, really. When you take that word dukkha apart, ka is face, and duh means difficult. So it's like there's always something in life even in a good life, that's difficult to face. So it's that thing that's difficult to face. We naturally don't want to deal with the unpleasant, you know, with the hurtful, with the, you know, in the Buddha's language, old age, illness, death, separation, loss. But even for people who get through most of their lives without having to face that, there's still old age, illness, and death. We have to train our minds to be able to do that difficult thing which is what Cage was trying to show his audience. So in your psychotherapeutic sessions, also it seems that both of you are training to allow that flow. You talk about the unobstructed flow of emotional energy. And one of the questions I had is, yes, it seems very clear to me why I would turn away from the unpleasant, the painful, anything that reminds me of my mortality, that I understand. But you also talk about counterintuitively, we're turning away from joy and we're turning away from happiness too. We're afraid of experiencing that joy. Can you say something about that? Because that that is a bit ironic. That is more mysterious, right? Why do people pull back from those kinds of feelings? I think there's a loss of ego or a loss of self or a loss of control that happens when there's bliss, when there's joy, even when there's some simple kinds of happiness. To fully experience it requires you to at least momentarily let go of all the defensive ego mechanisms that we're employing to hold ourselves together in this you know sort of scary world that we uh, find ourselves in that's one reason another reason might be cognitively that those experiences challenge uh, deeply held convictions that we have about ourselves as inadequate ashamed insufficient, unable to love, something wrong with me. Because I remember one of my first meditation retreat experiences when I was just following the rules and watching my breath and my mind was getting a little bit concentrated. And then suddenly out of nowhere, I was like filled with these feeling sensations of love that, uh, you know, where did they come from? I had no idea. And then they were sweeping through me. I've been chasing those feelings ever since. It's not like they happen every time I go on retreat. Mm -hmm. It was very profound. And then I remembered 
Ramdas, who was one of my early influencers, Ramdas saying, you know, you're not who you think you are. And I always loved that. I thought I was only who I thought I was. But that experience on retreat of like, oh my God, I think in the subtitle, uncovering a hidden kindness in life, I think I was thinking a little bit about that experience that there's lurking within all of us are these capacities for these kinds of experiences. Yeah, it's funny. I just thought as you were speaking of a student of Tibetan Buddhism and she was with her teacher and they were driving through the Rockies, everything around them was quite beautiful. And she kept saying, oh my God, that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. She couldn't stop saying that. And her teacher finally turned to her and said, is it too much for you? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's hard to be with something that powerful. It requires that you let go of who you think you are, back to Ram Dass. And there's a famous story in Freud's writing, little essay called On Transience. It's one of my favorite things of Freud. I think he's hiking in the mountains in Switzerland where he used to go in the summer with an unnamed poet who people say was Rilke. The poet couldn't open to the beauty that was around him. And Freud was like, what's wrong with you? Tried to figure it out with his psychoanalytic mind. It was the same kind of thing, that the beauty of the surround was too overwhelming. Freud ends the essay with, is a flower that blooms for only a single night any less beautiful? And I thought, wow, what could be more Buddhist than that? Oh, absolutely. I know your practice background. I know that it began with Vipassana, and you've remained in many ways with that tradition. Although, as with Bob Thurman, you've been exposed to Tibetan Buddhism. You're very influenced by that. Despite your personal background, in this book, you turn to Zen poetry and you write, to my way of thinking, therapy, like the poetry of medieval Japan, is an art form of our time and place, one that can reach new depths by way of creative synthesis with Buddhist thought and practice. I thought that was great. And you talk a lot about haiku, the haiku poets. So why don't you say a little bit about the connection there? When I was writing the commentaries or the reflections on each of the psychotherapy cases, I started to see each case or each session as a kind of haiku. Because here it's just like this one patient, this one hour, in one season, in condensed form, these tiny little details. But looking at the tiny little details, like in a haiku, you know, like the tiny little details of the frog jumping into the pond, wind blowing, and the butterfly wing, whatever it is, these tiny little details illuminated so much. And if I hadn't written the sessions down, they would have passed me by. So then I started reading the haikus, and then the haikus themselves, these Japanese poems, started to come alive for me, would find one that seemed to really match the energy of the session. And that was really fun for me. That was like one of the most exhilarating aspects of the writing, finding the haiku that matched the session that I could use to try to say in a poetic way you know, about what the Buddhist thing was that was happening that I couldn't really say directly, you know, or any more directly than the haiku was already saying. And then I started to explore what is a koan, really. The actual translation is it's it's a public case. And then I thought, oh, these psychotherapy sessions that I'm taking out of the closet and putting in a book, they're like public cases also. So anyway, it gave me another way of thinking about the whole project, which I ended up really enjoying. Yeah, you know, it's really great to be able to read about the sessions, which would otherwise be unavailable to people. I just want the listeners to know that the patients themselves read them and they're okay with them. And although there are pseudonyms, they're true to the actual sessions. Yeah. 
Love it that one person said, make sure you say that I look like Antonio Banderas. <laughs> so there's a charm and an intimacy and a pathos and, a, and also a joy yeah. to these sessions that really comes through. And you draw from John Tarrant's excellent work, Bring Me the Rhinoceros. And I, yeah. I love how koans figure into this. You know, I was unfamiliar with his work. You as editor of Tricycle probably know all of these characters more than I do. But my friend Jonathan Cott, he knew all the Zen poetry. And I had been sitting with him a couple of years before. My wife, Arlene, did that installation in Madison Square Park. She right. did a big sculpture installation. That was wonderful. As part of that, she had a couple of actors come at various times. Once Diane Wiest and once Fiona Shaw. And they did these little performances that were not advertised at all, but they did it every day for 45 minutes at lunchtime, one in the fall, one in the spring. So the first day, there'd be about 10 people there. But by the end of the week, there were like several hundred because the word got around. So it was really mm -hmm. exciting. And I was sitting next to Jonathan at one of those events. And he, out of the blue, quoted one of these Japanese poems, Under Cherry Trees There Are No Strangers, which never would have made sense to me, except here we were. You know, right. There were no cherry trees, but we were all focused on this one actor's great work. And the feeling of community was so strong. So the haiku made total sense. So when I started writing the book, I called up Jonathan and said, remember, you quoted that, where can I find more? And so he sent me like 10 books. And one of them, he said, I, I don't know if you'll get anything from this, bring me the rhinoceros, you know, and other koans, but I really liked it, he said. So when I finally got to it, I thought it explained everything that I was trying to write about. I found it very helpful. Those are really deployed to good use. Some of the koans I read or haiku that I'd read before, in that context, I thought, aha, in the same way you did in Madison Square Park. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Family life can be chaotic, but mindfulness can help. It doesn't necessarily have to be a formal daily meditation practice. There are simple, fun techniques that you can use with your kids in the moment to work through difficult emotions and find greater ease and calm. Sign up now for Tricycle's new online course, Mindfulness for Kids and Parents, to learn meditation and yoga techniques that you can practice with your kids or on your own. Led by Atman Smith, Andres Gonzalez, and Ollie Smith of the Holistic Life Foundation, this course offers a practical path to integrating mindfulness into everyday family life. If you're a Tricycle subscriber, you can get up to 35% off all online courses. Enroll today at learn.tricycle.org. Now let's get back to the conversation with Mark Epstein. I just want to say something about the structure of the book. There are also four sections divided by season, each associated with a particular Buddhist tenet or philosophical point. And I just wanted to get to summer for a moment because you explore the Buddhist teaching on no-self in relationship to psychoanalytic theories of self. And in particular, you ask, if inklings of no self are not necessarily signs and symptoms of developmental deficits, but also windows into underlying truth, how are we to proceed? Which I thought was wonderful because this notion of no self is thought to be pathological. What if somebody's intuiting a fundamental truth? I remember when I first started writing the pages that turned into that opening section, and I was trying to talk about when I was growing up, I was always worried about 
myself wasn't self enough. Mm-hmm. I was preoccupied with that from God knows when, but you can't help comparing yourself to the people you see around you. And the people you see around you look like more real selves than you feel like from the inside. Anyway, I don't know how universal that is, but it was certainly true for me. You could call it just anxiety or insecurity, or I remember the first therapist that I ever went to when I was in college said, oh, this is just the Oedipus complex, you know, (laughs) but I didn't know what that meant at that point. So I was glad it had a name. But if the self that we're brought up in the Western world to think should exist, if it really doesn't exist in the way we imagine it, which is what the Dalai Lama always says, it's not that there's no self, because that's ridiculous. You're you and I'm me, etc., but the self doesn't exist in the way we imagine it. And that's sort of analogous to Ramdas telling right. me, you know, you're not who you think you are. And to Winnicott, who was always saying, most can't really get out of their childhoods without creating what he called a, a false self or a caretaker self that's originating in the mind, trying to figure out how to take care of either the intrusive or the abandoning environment of family life. So all of those ideas were swirling around when I'm writing this. What if the self doesn't have to be what we think it should be? And what if we were maybe correct in wondering about it, even from a very young age, and then we have to push all that away, you know, in order to function? And then Buddhism comes along or therapy comes along and says, you know, relax about all that and just see what's there. Try to find it as it really exists, not as you think it should. I often think of stop trying to figure out what you should be, see what comes up. Yeah. But you mentioned something else about comparing mind when you were young, and it's more or less comparing your insides with people's outsides. It's always a mismatch. But you talk about one patient who feels inadequate, and when he sees a particular friend who critiques his poetry unfavorably, I think, he feels doubly inadequate, and he seems to want from this friend some sort of approval. Of course, he's plagued with his comparing mind. How am I doing against others? And how mm-hmm. is my work? And, and, and you say to him, why don't you just be his friend? Mm-hmm. When you see him, just be his friend. Talk a little bit about that, because I thought that's an excellent answer to what so many of us feel so often. I'm not good enough. I don't compare well. Well, how about just being the friend and stop requiring or demanding a kind of approval? I believe I said to him, oh, that's one of the last fetters. In Buddhism, there are the 10 fetters which are the last things to fall away as enlightenment approaches. And the comparing mind, the way we measure ourselves against others, even in very highly evolved meditators who have achieved all kinds of realizations about being and let go of anger and when whatnot, that fetter is still there. And so this almost enlightened person is comparing their achievements to that almost enlightened person and I'm a little more enlightened than you are. That's going on, you you know? (laughs) So if it's going on on that level, for those of us who are struggling in New York and America and regular life, it's going on for us. So for this patient who I was writing about, it was certainly going on, had been going on for a long time. And those loops were going in his mind as he was anticipating a trip with his friend. I was trying to cut through all of that and instead of making it be about what he was feeling or what he wasn't getting from his friend, I was trying to turn it around 
so that he could put the good energy out there. Just show the friend San Francisco, I think it was. Why not take the active role, which might go against some Buddhist, you know, like, oh, just sort of lay back and be. But it was leading with kindness, I think, is what I was trying to get at as a way of counteracting that measuring, comparing tendency that we all have. Another thing I got out of that, he wants a certain approval from this friend of his, and he doesn't want to feel inadequate, and he feels that if this friend finally acknowledges this poetry, somehow this will be better. But why doesn't he think about giving as a friend rather than expecting or wanting? Right, right. Which changes the whole experience. Yeah. The Buddhist psychologies are so good about the giving, and I think I talk about this with another person in the book, about how there's beggarly giving and then kingly giving, giving with an expectation of getting something back, and then just giving for the sake of giving. And that makes a difference in your consciousness. I think it's in that same summer section, I could be mistaken, that you quote your friend and former therapist, Michael Vincent Miller. And he says of Buddhism and psychotherapy, and he came to Buddhism after you did, both aim for the restoration of innocence after experience. Can you say something about what that means? Well, when he said that to me, we were at dinner, and I was talking a little bit about my work, I think, or the writing or something. And out of the blue, he said that to me. You know, Mark, what both Buddhism and psychotherapy aim for is restoration of innocence after experience. I was like, oh, I don't even know what that means, but (laughs) I know it's so profound. It felt so true, especially in the psychotherapy world, but I think it extends into just all of our worlds. We're sort of led to believe that experience is everything, you know, that we learn from experience, that we're supposed to learn from experience. That's what life is about. It's a journey, you know, and et cetera. But what was your face before you were born? You know, that koan. Right. Back to the koans. My early conversation with Ramdas when he found out that I had become a psychiatrist and he said to me, teasing me a little bit, like, oh, Mark, are you a Buddhist psychiatrist now? And I'm like, I guess so. (laughs) <laughs> and he said, well, so do you see them, do you see the patients as already free? And I was like, oh yeah, that's the same. I think I do see them as already free. So this idea of that there's a hidden kindness in life, that Buddha nature is inherent to who we are, that experience layers us, and we do learn from it, but also we have to defend ourselves against experience, and we start to develop all these ideas about identity all these ideas about who we are and who the other person is and so on. But that the innocence that's ours as a birthright that gets covered over and lost and so on. When we talk about the feeling of coming home when we find meditation or when we find ourselves in meditation or are finally feeling more at peace about ourselves, there's some reconnection with that original kind of innocence. I think that's what Michael was getting at. You know, I think of the return to innocence, the restoration of innocence, and I I was thinking about that, and it reminded me of Paul Ricoeur's second naivete. It's sort of the faith of an adult versus the faith of a child. We do come back to the innocence changed, but the innocence is nonetheless there. We're adults now. It feels like a different experience, and at least from Ricoeur's point of view, we bring our critical mind to our experience or to the texts, and we come through it either disillusioned or we come through it with a second naivete. The narrative and the symbols once again have meaning, but even deeper meaning. Mm. And I wonder if the innocence qualitatively is different from the innocence of a child. I imagine it is. Oh, I think so. But I think it's more like the innocence that a parent feels with a new child, which is one of the places that I went in the book. You did. I was going to ask about that next. 
often I look at psychotherapy and we think psychologically as Westerners, we just do. I mean, you can't go back. But I often had difficulty with this psychological orientation I had and my Buddhist practice. But you do a great job of kind of not washing away those differences, but seeing both. Like, for instance, the oceanic feeling. You talk about the oceanic feeling and Freud's take on that, which you say, I'm not dismissing that. That has value. But what else did you have to say about that oceanic feeling? Because it reminds me of the return to innocence. I don't know how much familiarity people have with what Freud meant by the oceanic feeling, but he had a big correspondence with a French poet named Romain Roland, who was a student of Ramakrishna and Vivekananda, and told Freud a lot about what happened to him in meditation. You know, really made Freud look at it. Freud says, I can't really find this experience you're describing in my lifetime. Basically, he said, I can't remember it exactly, but maybe I'm, I'm too Jewish. It's too much for my Jewish <laughs> mind, basically. He didn't say it like that. But Freud was saying that those experiences, the meditation experiences that he was hearing about, reminded him of a young child at the breast, and that they were like seeking a restoration of the limitless narcissism of the infant at the breast. And what I think is that it's partially true. I think we've all, on these meditation retreats anyway, if we've been lucky enough, we have these blissful experiences. That's one of the things that we keep coming back for, that if you really look at what they are, and also how addictive they can be, and how people get trapped in seeking them, they have a lot of that blissful feeling of the infant at the breast, the restoration of limitless narcissism, etc., etc., and that's part of their power. And I always see that as part of the concentration practices, the samadhi practices in meditation. They give you that kind of holding environment for the mind that has an infinite quality. But I think it's not solely the experience of the infant at the breast. It's also the experience of the mother holding the infant. That much more in meditation, what we're experiencing, once we start to use the accumulated samadhi to investigate the nature of mind is that we're becoming much more like John Cage, you know, who's hearing everything and allowing everything the way a mother has to hear and hold a baby. So it's the maternal quality or the parental quality, you know, that also is oceanic. So that was interesting and fun for me to try to figure out how to talk about. You know, you mentioned John Cage again, and he is woven through the book. Yeah. And I was thinking of you sitting there, and at times you're very honest. You say, the patient says this, and I was thinking, well, what am I going to say? And you somehow or another come through. So here we're working with the art of therapy. You are sort of spontaneously responding. You yourself need to experience this sort of unblocked exchange with the patient. And so you're, in a certain way, performing an art very similar to Cage. It's a spontaneous kind of unblocked opening. Yeah, I think the improvisational nature of therapy, in my experience, that's one of the things that it requires. And that might just be the way that I work, but I think it's proven, at least to me, to be an important capacity to bring to the encounter, you know? And a kind of trust, to trust my own mind without trying too hard to find, as we talked at the beginning, the right interpretation, but to use what comes in a judicious way to uh, engage and provoke and support a patient depending on where they are. I imagine early on in your career as this 
the Harvard Medical School trained psychiatrist, you might have come to therapy thinking you needed to know answers or you needed to give your patients answers. Maybe in the beginning of your career, I don't know, but you really seem to have come to this place where it's okay if you don't know. The thing about becoming a psychiatrist or a therapist via the medical route is that they don't really teach you anything about being a therapist. Uh. They teach you about, you know, diseases, dermatology, and, you know, and then one day you're the psychiatrist. It's not like you can go in with the surgeon and assist, you know, and watch how to do it. You just have to like go with the patient into the room and be the therapist suddenly. Like hardly any education about how to do it. For me, that was good because I had to figure it out for myself. I had the Buddhist training in me already. So the best I could do was to try to deploy for the patient what I had learned how to deploy for my own mind. And that kind of set me on this path that we're talking about now. And I've had good therapy teachers since, but they were all very supportive of not knowing as the kind of foundation of the relationship. Right. That really comes through in the book. I mean, it's really a wonderful <laughs> really book. really comes through how much I don't know. <laughs> no, no, that you're comfortable when you don't know, or yeah, at least yeah. you relax into that. It's exciting. It's a mutual discovery. That's the thing about therapy. It's a mutual discovery. That's what it's all about. I'm going to ask you one last question anger. Mm -hmm. And I realize we don't have a lot of time, but people judge themselves for anger and maybe even Buddhists more so. Somehow or another, anger is not okay. Yeah. So what role can aggression play in awakening? You know, as you said, I structured the book around the four seasons. Mm -hmm. And then with each season, I had, you know, an element of the Buddhist path, basically. So the first was clinging, and then mindfulness, and then insight. And then it was going to be compassion, like the fourth one was compassion. And I had all the sessions that were purporting to lead to compassion. And my editor read it over and she was like, Mark, every one of these sessions is about anger. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone is about aggression, which was true. We had to reconfigure. So now the fourth one is aggression. And then the final chapter is about kindness. The reason for that was that in my way of thinking, and a lot of it comes again out of Winnicott, that a healthy relationship to anger healthy from our psychotherapeutic point of view, perhaps also from a Buddhist point of view, a less fundamentalist Buddhist view. A healthy relationship with aggression is the fundamental requirement for the development of compassion. Because an infant, young child with a parent, anger isn't differentiated from desire or need. It's all fused into one thing. A baby just wants what it wants, and if it doesn't get it, it's pissed, you know? And Winnicott describes that as the ruthless attack, you know, of the infant. And he says, a parent, a good enough parent, not a perfect parent, a good enough parent is able to tolerate that attack and not retaliate and not abandon, but to sort of be there to coax the child into a soothing, calming down, you know, like, I'm here, it's okay we'll feed you, we'll change you, it's all right, relax. And he equates that for a therapist, a mother who's not able to tolerate the child's aggression or her own hatred that is evoked by the child's aggression is like a therapist who's unable to tolerate a patient's aggression or his or her own hatred or anger at being aggressed at. And I equate that to a meditator who's not able to tolerate his or her own anger or frustration or shame or whatever else, you know, comes up. The mind of the meditator has to be like the mind of the therapist or the mind of the mother 
and be able to create a good enough holding environment so that the aggression can reveal itself, but not destroy. What Winnicott says about the growing child is that it is that aggression that lets the child see that the mother or father is not perfect, that they're not there just to serve them, that they're not a narcissistic extension of the child. It's the anger and the resolution of the anger itself that lets the child see the parent as a separate person. And you can't develop compassion for another until you're able to see them as a separate subject in their own right. I'm trying to paint that whole picture in the last part of the book. Right. You talk about being able to tolerate these emotions that frighten us or threaten to overwhelm us. You also talk about meditation and therapy as a way to sit with a sense of emptiness too. I'm not talking about Buddhist emptiness, just the sense that nothing's going on here. So what can you say about that? I guess it's learning to be with ourselves. It's learning to be with everything. The emptiness that you're talking about, where there's nothing going on here, there's no such thing as that emptiness. There's always mm-hmm. something going on. Right. I think the way that I ended the book is talking about the point of the two worlds coming together is to help us all become partners with the capacities that constitute us, You know, partners with the capacities that constitute us, so that everything's recruited into the journey to enlightenment anger, like in the tantric paintings, you know, anger, desire, envy, conceit, measuring, all of that has a function. And if we can detoxify it enough to use the energy that's there, we become partners with those capacities. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. I mean, it was really a pleasure speaking with you. I could go on all day and I'm sure we'll speak again. For our listeners, make sure to pick up a copy of Mark's book, The Zen of Therapy, Uncovering a Hidden Kindness in Life. Wonderful accomplishment, Mark. Thank you. Thank you, James. Always a pleasure. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to Tricycle Talks with Mark Epstein. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org to let us know what you think. Tricycle Talks is produced by As It Should Be and Sarah Fleming. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.